Thanks so much, guys. These guys are coming at four to practice, and uh, I really appreciate all the hard work you guys put in. You do such a great job. So thank you so much for your commitment and your expertise. Um, I hope if I had a small, I hope I had a small degree of credibility with you guys. But if I did, I'm about to ruin it um, with this story. So I don't know if you guys do this, but over Christmas break, I just love to watch Christmas movies. And when I go home to be with my family, we gravitate towards those movies that I used to love when I was a kid. And uh, I think we probably went to an all-time low this Christmas. Um, is anyone familiar with the movie Jingle All the Way? Um, it has not won any awards, and it never will. Because this movie is Arnold Schwarzenegger and the uh, comedian Sinbad. Does anybody even remember Sinbad? This guy was hilarious. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad trying to uh, fight over this Turbo Man doll. Oh, get the Turbo Man! Do you guys remember this story? Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger needs to score one of these dolls for his son. He told his wife he'd already bought the doll. And uh, Man, the movie is just, uh, it's so cheesy and silly, but you can't help but love it. Um, it probably came out when I was in like, I don't know, 7th or 8th grade. And we decided to revisit this classic of the cinema. And I have to tell you, I loved it. <laughs> that destroys my credibility. And it was really interesting to me as we watched this movie. I'm sure you guys have had this experience, probably not with Jingle All the Way, but when you watch a movie as a kid, you can really love it and you think you know the story, but then you watch it again as an adult and all these different things stick out to you and you get different jokes that just went totally over your head. Um, watch any Disney movie and that will happen. You thought Disney was so clean. Um, but watch a Disney movie and now you're going to just have open eyes. Um, yeah. It was really interesting to me to watch this movie and just see these different things emerge from the story as I've grown a lot and matured and had different life experiences since the previous time I watched it. And uh, as I was thinking about this week's passage, um, in case you weren't here last week, we started a new series. And it's called Home and Away, basketball fun. Um, and in this home section, we're talking about the book of Daniel. Pardon me. In the away section, we're talking about the book of Daniel. Uh, the Israelites away, exiled in the land of Babylon. And last week, we kind of introduced it. And this week, we're going to share a little bit about a famous story that I'm sure you guys, um, most of you have probably heard about these Israelite men being tossed into a fiery furnace. And what I want to say is that this is the kind of story where it's like a movie you may have seen a bunch of times as a kid and you feel like you've got it figured out. And then you watch it again as an adult and these totally new things stick out to you. And so I want to encourage you to be open to the fact that maybe tonight God's Spirit wants to speak to you in a new and fresh way. Though you may have heard this story uh, many times before, there are some really simple and powerful truths that emerge in this story, but there are also a lot of new things that God has uh, put on my heart this week in studying this story, and so I hope that uh, you'll be open to that as well. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open it up to Daniel chapter 3, and if you don't have it with you, that's okay too. This is a whole chapter of scripture, and so I thought it would be a lot more uh, engaging if I kind of told the story and worked through the text as we went, rather than having someone read the entire block of it all up front. And so let's get into it. I want to set the stage here at the beginning. So let me tell you this story. Uh, 
Last week we introduced the book of Daniel, and so you need to know that this is the story of this group of Israelite young men who've been taken into exile in Babylon. These are the elites, the best of the best from the land of Israel, taken to exile, uh, taken into exile to Babylon and conscripted into the king's service. And so this is after Israel has been conquered by that nation. And you need to remember that Babylon was a really harsh and idolatrous place. This would be a land and a time where their faith would be stretched, it would be challenged, um, where they would be tested. But God would be with them in the midst of it, even in the midst of their difficulty and uncertainty. He would be with them as they looked to him in faith. And so God would provide for them, he would sustain them, he would even use them to make him known there. But this would be a very difficult time for them in this land. And last week we looked at Daniel and his friends' development in Babylon as they were mentored during this three-year period by Ashpenaz, one of the king's court officials. And they were mentored to this place where they were brought before the king and tested, and he found no one in all the land who was up to par with where they were at, and so he put them into his own service as court officials. And so these men, these Israelites, are foreigners in Babylon serving Babylon's king. And at the point of tonight's story, Daniel was one of the king's top advisors. He was at this position of great favor with King Nebuchadnezzar as a result of his gifts from God in interpreting dreams. He interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's troubling dream, and the king just respected uh, his faith and his gift that he'd clearly been given by his God. Babylon was a pagan nation. They believed in many gods, but even King Nebuchadnezzar could see that there was something special about Daniel's God, and that he'd been given this gift to interpret dreams. And so Daniel's been promoted to this position as a ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and Daniel's friends, who we introduced, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Todd. Um, no, there were no Todds in Babylon. Um, Abednego, he'd appointed them administrators in Babylon, and so this is some, uh, I guess you could say, it's some good old-fashioned nepotism. Daniel getting his buddies some jobs, maybe. But I, I imagine they probably did pretty well in their review before Nebuchadnezzar as well. And so Daniel is living um, in the king's court, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are spread throughout the province at their posts. And so where we're at tonight in chapter 3 um, is this point where King Nebuchadnezzar has just begun building this massive, ornate structure. So he's the most powerful king in this region at the time. He's building this massive ornate structure. It was probably made out of wood and then plated in gold, about 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. And so it would have been these thick sheets of gold heated in a furnace and then molded onto this wooden structure. And it was probably <laughs> dedicated to uh, Nabu, this Babylonian god of wisdom who Nebuchadnezzar was named after. Uh, this was a really common thing for kings to do because the Babylonians would have thought that Nebuchadnezzar's gods were responsible for his success. And so they built this idol to honor Nabu, but more so it was to honor Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar constructs this massive ornate structure about six miles south of this capital city of Babylon, and he invites all of his government officials to come out and see it, his advisors, his administrators in military, finance, uh, his judges, all these government officials from all throughout the nation. Babylon was a very diverse place. They would have spoken a multitude of languages, and people would have traveled far for this. And um, they all traveled to this spot about six miles south of the city of Babylon. And 
this dedication was just a huge deal. Some of these people had probably been to an idol dedication before, but surely not one of this magnitude. And to understand why this was such a big deal, we need to look a little bit at the historical context. Um, this statue wasn't primarily constructed for religious reasons. The reason Nebuchadnezzar would have constructed it and called these leaders to come and pay homage at the statue was to show their allegiance to him as king. Their worship was a sign of their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar by worshiping his god. It was an effort to ensure that his empire was unified under his leadership. This was much more about Nebuchadnezzar as the king solidifying himself as the people's leader more so than promoting any kind of pagan worship. And so all these officials are gathered here at this statue. And in case they've never been to a dedication before, Nebuchadnezzar has an MC of sorts on site to tell them what to do. And as we kind of work our, our way through this story, you'll see he gives them these instructions. As soon as you hear all these instruments that I don't really know what they are, the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Any of you Jacob students play the zither or lyre? No? Maybe next year. Um, and so, like we said, their worship would have been a sign of their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, and the MC clued them into the fact that they had better participate by letting them know that if they didn't bow down, it would be a capital offense. He said, whoever does not fall down in worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Um, that is pretty hardcore. Uh, refusal to bow would basically be a gesture of treason, and so they would be killed if they didn't do it. Um, so we go through the story, and the music plays, and of course, everybody bows down. Or did they? Um, after the craziness concludes, some of the king's astrologers came forward and they tattled to the king. Uh, there are some Jews who you put over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And so, of course, these guys weren't just mad that the men weren't bowing down. They probably had a personal vendetta against them. Some commentators think they may even have coveted these men's jobs because they were put in such a high position of authority being outsiders, people from the nation of Israel. And so these men come and tattle to the king on them for not bowing down. And the text says that this made Nebuchadnezzar furious with rage. You don't want to make a king furious with rage. Um, so he calls the men to him and says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? And so before they can get in a word, he says, Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Um, I love that. Immediately. Like, not a second's hesitation. This is serious. Immediately. Instant and immediate death. That's like a classic line that every bad guy in a cartoon uses, right? Nebuchadnezzar was serious. So he takes their disobedience as a personal insult, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had refused to bow. But this wasn't because they had this problem with Nebuchadnezzar as a king. It was because they just could not worship the false god that he'd set up. Um, they weren't trying to make a political statement here like Nebuchadnezzar would have thought they would. They respected him, but their faith drew some lines that could not be crossed, and there was no way they were going to bow. And so, 
If you know anything about this story, you know that Nebuchadnezzar is less than understanding about this dynamic. Um, he couldn't care less about their tension between obedience to him as an administrator over them and their religious convictions. But he decides to give him this one more chance. And I imagine this is probably because he invested a lot in them personally. I mean, three years of training, that's food, that's a lot of food. Um, we know they ate vegetables, right? And now they're employees of his government, so who wants to hire three more employees? Um, so how would these men respond to Nebuchadnezzar's command and his threat? This is a scary one before them. Um, he was hardly just testing them. So when he tells them that he was going to burn them if they didn't respond to what he'd said, this was actually a really common punishment throughout the ancient Near East at this time. And once they were thrown in the furnace, it would be all over. There was no hope for them if that happened. Um, so furnaces like this one that we read about here have been found throughout the region. Um, where Babylon is located by archaeologists in the recent history, and they're most often constructed kind of like a railroad tunnel where one end is open and then the other end is closed off. So it's this cave-like structure where once you're inside, there's no way out. Um, they were heated with charcoal to temperatures as high as 1,800 degrees. Um, if they were punished by this means, they're done for. And so Nebuchadnezzar makes his decree of what they must do and what will happen if they don't obey. But he can't help himself but to toss in a really arrogant comment at the end. He says to them, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Um, he says to them at the end of this threat. But as you'll see, Nebuchadnezzar is going to eat these words. Um, like we talked about last week, the Israelites were in a dark and a desperate place in Babylon, but they weren't a people without hope. God would be with them in the midst of their exile. Um, our title of our message last week was God Goes Abroad. His power extended over Babylon, and he would be faithful in sustaining them and providing for them there, no matter what they went through, in all of it. So when these three men hear Nebuchadnezzar's words, they don't cower in fear, which I'm sure he really hated. Uh, they say, we respect that you're king and all, but we just can't bow. They tell him, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So that's some really confident faith, but they take it a step even further, saying, but even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So that is bold, but it's also kind of foolish. They're basically saying, God is able to save us, but if it's not his plan to do it, I'd rather be dead and found faithful by him than willingly forsake him. They must have really <coughs> believed in God's ability to save. But they even believed that his saving could extend beyond life itself. And saying a comment like this, they're just setting themselves up for anything. They're putting themselves out there. And so, as you might expect, this comment from them really set the arrogant king off. In verse 19, Nebuchadnezzar is said to have been furious with rage. I mean, he was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. Um, if he was furious with rage before and his attitude toward them changed, um, not for the better, there's not much room to go. And so where does he go? There's no more second chance. He doesn't give them this second chance to bow down and worship. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie the three up, the text says, and to throw them into the burning furnace. 
And so these men, they come and they bind them up with these tight and heavy ropes and they carry them to the furnace. They hurl them into the fire, but it's so hot that even these men carrying them into the fire are burned up by the flames themselves and killed and performing their duty for the king. And so these three men are tossed into the fire with officials from all over Babylon watching. They're there to watch them burn. And so they're thrown into the fire and all these onlookers see them, but Nebuchadnezzar jumps up to his feet and everybody must have wondered what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar's amazed and he shouts, weren't there three people in the fire? And his advisors say, of course. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Um, so to Nebuchadnezzar, this term son of the gods would have conveyed an idea, this understanding that um, the gods of Israel, the God of Israel had sent some sort of divine messenger, maybe an angel, or maybe some other heavenly being to intervene on his worshippers' behalf. This son of the gods had evidently freed the men of their bonds, and now the four of them were walking around in the furnace, 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, that's, just, that's just an estimate. That's not in Scripture, just so you know. I don't want you to stake your life on the fact that the Bible said it was 1,800 degrees. Um, and so Nebuchadnezzar is totally freaking out. He gets as close to the furnace as he can without burning up himself, and he yells, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out! Come here. And so these three men come out of the furnace and they come over to him. And everyone crowds around noticing, uh, I love these observations in the text, that the fire had not harmed their bodies. There was not a hair of their head singed. Have any of you guys ever done that thing where you light a tennis ball on fire and you kind of like juggle it around if it's been soaked in lighter fluid? Man, when I was a kid, we did that for fun. Um, <laughs> it singes all the hair on your hands. I see some nods back there. Not a, not a hand, hair was singed. What a miracle. Uh, so, not a hair on their heads was singed. The fire had not harmed their bodies. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Um, which would have been the only positive that it could have come out of it, if you ask me. I kind of like the smell of campfires. Um, so, Nebuchadnezzar is totally floored. There's no explanation for what has just occurred outside of divine intervention. There's no way around this. He's witnessed a miracle, and he knows it. Um, he does not believe in the uniqueness of the God of Israel, but there is no doubt in his mind that divine intervention has just occurred. He says in verse 28, this is a pagan king, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. So he's praising them for denying him. The very thing for which he just wanted to kill them about three minutes ago. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar knew that something miraculous had just happened. He knew that the God of Israel was able to act in miraculous ways because of his experience with Daniel earlier and his ability to interpret his dreams through the gift God had given him. But what he's saying here is that the God of Israel is absolutely powerful. He'd seen it with his own eyes. So this chapter takes an incredible turn. At the very beginning, we see Nebuchadnezzar, this powerful king's effort to unite a kingdom in one religion under Nebuchadnezzar, all about himself. And the chapter ends with him, this same arrogant man acknowledging that the God of Israel 
was able to save, that he was all-powerful over this situation, and even permitting his worship. This is absolutely crazy. You never would have thought this would have happened at the beginning of the story. But the passage ends with him making this decree whereby Judaism becomes a recognized and protected religion in this pagan land. Verse 29, Nebuchadnezzar says, Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. Uh, that is no mild punishment. For no other God can save in this way. It's crazy. This is a crazy story. And there are some amazing truths about God and his ability and his activity in the world that emerge in the midst of this story. And so I want to start off with some of the more obvious and work through them a little bit. And the first one is this. It is clear in this story that God is one who is able to miraculously deliver. Like that song we sang right before I began my message, the God of Israel is one who is mighty to save. People don't walk out of 1,800 degree furnaces after being thrown in there bound up. This was clear to even King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he was beyond a skeptic. God had done something miraculous in their saving, and it could not be ignored. This is a historical event that we read, um, and it's an incredible story. It's one that really happened, and only God is able to do things like this. And so the question is before us, is the God that we are talking about here the same God that is active in the world today? Is the God of this story the same God that we worship? Yes. I mean, there is no indication in Scripture that God is bound and unable to act in this way. God is still able to perform miracles. Um, nowhere in Scripture is it indicated to us that we should believe anything otherwise, that his ability has been harnessed, that it's ceasing to exist in this world. So why do we limit God? He's able to accomplish so much more than we um, can make sense of in and of ourselves. God is able to exceed our limits, so we must never limit his ability to act based on what makes sense to us. He's able to act in miraculous ways, and this is a hope that we can hold on to no matter our, our circumstances. We can trust that God is able. God is always able. And so we pray for the miraculous with expectation in the midst of circumstances where sometimes that doesn't seem sensical. We trust that God is able. He's able to do it. Um, the God of this story is the same God that's active in our world today. Praying for God's miracles with expectant hope is a right thing to do. Um, but the second principle I want to share with you that emerges in this story is that the way in which God saves may not look the way that we would expect it. So, why didn't God soften the king's heart and spare these Israelite men from being tossed into the furnace in the first place? I don't know. Um... Why did he cause the statue to fall over as people were worshiping it and make a real statement there? I don't know. Why didn't he make the furnace collapse before the men were inside of it? I don't know, but he allowed them to go into the fiery furnace, which must have been incredibly scary for these men. Um, why, didn't God to choose, why didn't God choose to save them in these ways? I don't know. But does the fact that he didn't do that mean that he did not save them? Of course not. Um, God allowed them to be put in a position where their faith would be challenged, would be stretched to the absolute extreme. And he met them in the middle of it. 
I love the way a uh, commentator I was studying put this. He said, God did not deliver these men from the fire, but in it. He, did, he didn't deliver them from the fire, but in it. And that's what we saw. God works in all conditions, even in these seemingly hopeless situations. And so when we hear a story like this, these promises are ours. Um, the God of this story is the same God that is active in the world today. God is able to save, and he often does. But we also need to remember that it's not always going to be in the ways we hope or expect. And it's certainly not always going to be in a way that spares his people of all pain and difficulty. Based on what we see in this story, trying to predict the path of God's will can be really messy. Um, there's not this clean formula for exactly when and how God will perform miraculous saving works. But this leads us to the last principle I want to talk about that emerges in this story, and that is this. Um, do you remember the part of the story where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told that they were going to be thrown in the furnace, and they say to the king, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. You remember that statement? Um, I want to say that in this statement, they were basically acknowledging that it's by no means inconsistent for God to be able to save them for their, from their circumstance. He is all-powerful, but to actually choose not to do it. It's not inconsistent for God to be able to save them, but to choose not to do it. And so how could they believe this? I want to say that they believe this because they recognized that God is not only all-powerful, but he's all-wise. And because they believed this, they felt no sense of entitlement over the circumstances of their lives, or even over their lives themselves. They did not feel entitled to God, that God had to perform this miracle on their behalf. He can save us if he wants, they said, but we'll trust his wisdom. So how are they okay with this? Um, they were okay with this because they knew that if it was their time to go, that still wouldn't be the end of their story. Their God was big enough that they could trust him to be faithful, even if that was faithful over their deaths. Um, God would be faithful even over their deaths. And this isn't the only place in Scripture where we see this come out. Um, you may be familiar with the book of Job. If you're not, it's this story about God testing a man named Job's faith. And so he's experiencing all this difficulty. People are trying to tell him, Job, you're experiencing this because you've done something wrong to deserve it. Surely you must have done something to deserve this, uh, that God would allow all these things to happen to you. Or maybe, Job, just get over what's happened. It's not as bad as you're making it out to be. Or maybe they're leading him to question, Job, how can you believe that God is good if you're experiencing circumstances this terrible? And so, by the end of the book, Job gets to this place where he's just been wrecked repeatedly, time after time. And basically what he says to him, to his friends, to these people around him, presenting him with these challenges is, no, what I've gone through really is that bad. I'm not just being a whiner, and I haven't done anything to deserve it. But this doesn't change my understanding of God and his character. He's still wise, and he's still faithful. And in Job 13, 15, he puts it this way. Though he slay me, 
yet I will trust him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Wow. What Job is saying here is that the faithfulness of God knows no bounds, even unto death. Um, this is about <coughs> as big as truth can get, huh? Um, this is powerful truth, and this is truth for us as well. No matter how things end up, no matter how desperate our circumstances, no matter how the story ends, we have no need to fear because God's faithfulness extends over every area of our lives and goes even beyond the end of our physical life. We don't have to fear death because not even death can contain the power of God. God's faithfulness is over it. And so this hope isn't this nebulous hope that we just... Um, man, I really hope that this can come together. It's this hope that is secured for us because Jesus Christ, like that fourth man into the fire, entered into our world, that those who look to him in faith can be rescued from sin. They can be rescued from death by simply looking to him, by trusting in him. So in Christ, our sin no longer condemns us, and death is not the end of our story. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 15, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if I was in a different church, I would yell, can I get an amen? Um, in Christ, we're able to walk through this life with hope. Because we know that Christ is with us and he'll never turn away from us. And this is a firm promise. Again, Paul in Romans 8 says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. We're not just conquerors. We're more than conquerors who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is an amazing promise. And so the question I want to ask you is, if, have you trusted Christ? Um, if your answer to that is yes, hold on to this promise of God's salvation. Um, there are moments when life is really dark, um, when we can't make sense of our circumstances, and we don't see how they're going to resolve. Lean hard into this hope that extends without end. No matter what we're going through, even in death, God will be faithful. Um, and what I want to say to you is this truth. If you're a believer, this truth is incredibly comforting, but this truth is incredibly empowering also. In Christ, we have no fear in life or death. If we can live without fear, that is a game changer, right? How do we live if we have nothing left to fear? Um, Right after Paul's words, when he says that nothing can separate us from the work of Christ in Romans 8, he tells the church to give themselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so our response to knowing these promises of our salvation in Christ and his promise to sustain us no matter what we go through, to be with us, to uphold us even unto death, we respond in action we pour ourselves out into God's kingdom work in this world, partnering with him and bringing newness of life to these dark areas around us, serving him without fear, loving others even when it's costly. His spirit's inside of us, empowering us to do his will. Our labor will not be in vain, so don't give up hope. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you that as we look at this dichotomy um, between God's ability to act and his decision to act, I want you to know that there's one, there's one area where you can be entirely sure where God's ability to save and his will to save align. And that area is over your life. Um, 2 Peter chapter 3, 9 says it like this. The Lord does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants you to become a part of his family, the church, his people of faith. He does not want anyone to perish. He wants to save you, and he's able to save you. It's God's desire that you enter into his family and that you enjoy this newness of life with him, that you become a part of this mission of what he's doing in the world, and that you live forever with him in this new world. And so, will you acknowledge your lostness without him? Will you turn to him? Will you trust him? Will you trust his grace, the richness of his grace on your behalf? It's not about you doing anything to earn your way to his favor. It's not about cleaning yourself up enough and then joining the church, and then you're good enough to enter in. It's about trusting him, coming to him with where you're at, and leaning on what he's accomplished on your behalf through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. It's all about what he's done. Um, trust his grace. God sure has uh, much better... He does a much better job at directing the path of our lives than we do. Look to him in faith and follow him. And so if you want to talk about that, I would just love to talk to you about that. If you want to chat about that after connection sometime, or if you want to grab a coffee during the week, or come and uh, have a conversation in my office here at the church, please chat with me after the service, or send me an email, and uh, we'll get together. And so... In conclusion, we're going to close here in just a second with a song called One Thing Remains. And when we plan out our services this week, we actually put a lot of time into it to kind of think about a song that will lead well into our uh, time studying the Word together that will get our hearts in the right place. And I hope in reading this section of Scripture we've studied today, you have seen that those words, the first song we sang before our message were true. God is mighty to save. Um, and as we come out of the service, I want you to know we chose this song because it reminds us of the bold truth that because of Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. In death and life, we're confident and covered by the power of his great love. Those words of this song are powerful. Those words of this song are true. Band, why don't you guys come forward? We're going to close in prayer. God, we thank you so much for your word. It is powerful. Um, it cuts our hearts with truth, God. Um, it encourages us, it equips us, it inspires us, and it convicts us. There are so many times where I limit you by what I think um, makes sense based upon the principles of this world, but you are bigger than can be contained by the laws of um, gravity, the laws of nature, the laws of physics. Um, my own understanding, um, God, you are greater than all of those things. And so I pray that um, we wouldn't limit you, but I pray that you would also give us a deep faith to trust in your wisdom, to trust in your sovereignty. Um, God, your ability to act in a way that reflects your ultimate wisdom that is also greater than ours. And so, God, your ability to act and your wisdom and acting perfectly according to your fullness of knowledge. Uh, God, help us to believe those things. Help us to know those things are true. And most of all, God, I pray that you would help us to be able to respond to this truth by laying down our lives before you responding to you in faith and knowing that you are a God who is over every square inch of our lives, that no matter what, you are a God who will be faithful over the circumstances of our life.
And even over our deaths, God, you are faithful. Um, this is a hope that is secured for us in the work of Jesus Christ. You entered into the fire of this world that those who look to you in faith might not perish but have everlasting life. And so I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't have that relationship with you, that you would be speaking to them right now, drawing them to yourself. And for the rest of us, God, I pray that you would remind us of this truth, that we would lean hard into your promises in these dark moments that sometimes um, enter into our lives, that we would know that you are there with us in the midst of them, and that you are powerful over them, and that you are able to use them in your purposes, and no matter what we go through, you're a God who is able, and that you are a God who is with us, and that your purposes will be accomplished in our lives. And we pray this together in Christ's name, our hope and our salvation. Amen. Yeah,